Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of IAMCRN Friends. My name is Nicole, and I am your host today. Part of the IAMCRN Friends is an initiative, a podcast initiative by the International Association for Media and Communication Research, which is a global professional association of media and communication researchers. Today, I am here with a fellow IAMCR member, Tanner Merlis, who is an associate professor and undergraduate program director in the communication and Digital Media Studies at Ontario Tech University in Canada. He's also the former president of the Canadian Communication Association. His research interests in globalization of digital technology and entertainment industries include aspects like war, pop culture and technology, work and labor politics, critical pedagogy and ed tech, alt-right and social media, as well as technology in society. He has written books like Hearts and Minds, The U.S. Empire's Culture Industry, EdTech Inc., Selling, Automating, and Globalizing Higher Education in a Digital Age, as well as Global Entertainment Media Between Cultural Imperialism and Cultural Globalization. Welcome, Tanner. How are you doing today? Thank you so much, Nicole. It's uh, wonderful to be here, and this podcast initiative is fantastic. And uh, thank you so much for having me on today. It's my pleasure. And I know that the listeners are going to absolutely adore everything you're doing. The paper that you wrote for IMCR this year was about digital media imperialism. And I was wondering, how did you get into this? Where did it start? Where did this interest come from? Wow. You know, that's that's a great question. And it relates to quite a long sort of story, both personal and political and relatedly academic. So I became interested in the study of empire communications and media imperialism in general around 2001, uh, after the terrorist attack of 9-11 and a lot of the geopolitical uh, conflict emerging in its wake, uh, including um, the world's uh, largest and greatest uh, peace movements. Um, at the time, I was a PhD student in the Joint Communication and Cultural Program between York University and Toronto Metropolitan University, and I was learning a lot about historical materialist and international political economy theories and studies of what at the time was called the New American Empire and global capitalism. Uh, I was taking a course um, definitely out of my league with uh, uh, the eminent Leo Panitch called Globalization in the State. And I was also mentored by um, a wonderful scholar named Colin Moores, who in 2006 um, released an edited volume called New Imperialists, Ideologists of Empire, which I think continues to be relevant today. And, and actually at the time, it was 2006, this, this volume, uh, Colin you know, generously included uh, my first uh, contribution to the study of um, American cultural imperialism. And the essay, I think, was called American Soft Power or Cultural Imperialism? Question um, mark. So during the, uh, you know, during the early days of my PhD, um, I was also participating in the global peace movement, uh, which, of course, had tried to stop the US's wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I wrote my dissertation, and it was called The State of Cultural Imperialism, which was kind of trying to update uh, this research, um, you know, going back to, to Herbert Schiller, the great sort of political economist of empire and communications. And my dissertation was very much trying to update this, modify this, augment this, refine this theory for the 21st century, while also being attentive to the longer history of empire and communications going back to the 19th century. Um, so, you know, to the question of, you know, how did I get interested in digital, digital technology and digital media imperialism, you know, as the internet and social media platforms became more significant to global media communications around 2010, 
I became much more interested in how these digital technologies and platforms intersected with the economics, geopolitics, and cultural ideological expansion of empires, um, old and, and new. You wrote this fantastic paper that you presented at IMCR this year called The U.S. and China's Digital Tech Industries Go Global, A Rivalry in the New Digital Media Imperialism. This is part of a book chapter that will be coming out at some point, and I'm hoping you can provide a bit of context to the significance of this U.S.-China dynamic and their media powers. Sure, absolutely. Um, I'll try to provide some context, you know, both in terms of the research trajectory that I'm on and also, I guess, the present or the past decade, at least with regard to foreign policy shifts and shifts in global power dynamics. So, you know, I, I take it as axiomatic that the history of the modern world system has been shaped by the rise, maintenance and fall of different empires. And all empires rely upon communication systems and media and cultural industries for their expansion. So, you know, since 1945, it's well established that the United States was the world's dominant empire, uh, a global hegemon with no equal rival. But during the presidencies of Barack Obama and Donald Trump, the US's image as the only empire, the singular empire, started to fade. And more and more researchers argued that China had become the world's second largest imperial power and by far the most important rival to the US in terms of its economic strength, its you know, military size, and more importantly, its, its informational media and digital technological capacities. So you know, for the past decade, there's been sort of growing competition between the US and China and the corporations based there. And these international economic or capitalist competitions have very much been supported by each country's nation state. Um, and, you know, you see sort of over the past, uh, you know, uh, five years, six years, especially, you know, increasing tensions, wars of words, trade wars, sanctions, cyber wars, all of this is escalating between the US and China. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the elites of both countries um, are, are mobilizing the resources available and trying to win hearts and minds all over the world to their divergent societal models and visions of global order. And in this context, the digital media technology and cultural industries have become a flashpoint in this competition and this conflict to reshape the world system. So, you know, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say one of the authors that you cited was Colin Sparks. And I thought that this was really interesting. Colin says, uh, China is evolving into a small imperialist power. China is developing a media and cultural apparatus to support its nascent imperialist role. So what's going on here? What's happening with China's growth and development and influence in this area? Yes, you know, in this changing scenario, new political economy of communications research on the extent of the US and China's global media and cultural power is needed and it's happening and it's been undertaken by, by folks like Colin Sparks and Graham Murdoch and Diathusu and I'm very much following in their footsteps. So I think the sort of general or emerging consensus in the field that it makes good sense to broaden the purview of research on cultural imperialism or media imperialism or digital technology imperialism to shift the focus from a singular American sort of centered imperialism to multicultural imperialisms or multi-country imperialisms um, that, that, that of course is taking sort of the growth and the expansion of China very seriously. And so Colin Sparks was the, the, the first, um, you know, to the best of my knowledge, to call for new research on these rivalries. Um, you know, back in 2007, 
um, Sparks um, emphasized how a plurality of existing and would-be imperial states or groupings of states supporting media and technology corporations aligned with or headquartered in them was catalyzing new forms of international competition and conflict in the economic, geopolitical, and media cultural spheres. So um, in an even sort of more detailed reconsideration of cultural imperialism theory in 2012, Sparks elaborated on the dimensions of rivalry between the US and its challengers, not naming sort of China in particular, but including China, perhaps among the, the BRICS countries as, as a new and emerging sort of media and technological power. Um, so, you know, this, this new research, um, you know, basically sort of parts ways with, I think, what was very, very common in cultural imperialism research for a time, particularly sort of that research influenced um, by, by Herbert Schiller, who I was tremendously influenced by and still very much am because I think the work still has great value if it's updated and applied properly. But I think the sort of new sort of work is going to focus on um, you know, uh, multi-country imperialisms, maybe, you know, bipolar, multipolar imperialisms. Um, and, and this can be sort of both sort of historical or present-minded, you know, it can sort of focus on older modern empires like the British, the French, the Russian, the German, the Japanese uh, of ancient or sort of now post-colonial empires like China and India. Um, and, and I think what the big question we should be asking right now is, you know, to what extent do sort of these new media and cultural and digital technological imperialisms really substantively rival the U.S.'s? You know, is this sort of a, a post-American world, as some sort of commentators say, or is this sort of a new world of increasing, you know, competition, conflict, and rivalry, where the U.S. is still playing a very significant role in the overarching shaping of the global communications and media system? So given this rivalry, how is Western media framing it? Is it being framed as a rivalry or is it being framed in other ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, quite a lot of Western media will, will you know, uh, apropos sort of much research on foreign policy, agenda setting and media framing, you know, often sort of follow the line of the dominant foreign policy establishment and its, um, you know, mm -hmm. think tanks. And so over the past two years, a lot of Western media has framed the U.S.-China relationship indeed as a true rivalry of equals. You know, the idea here is, is that this is like a full-blown rivalry with China and the U.S. possessing equivalent military, economic, cultural, you know, informational and technological power. So, you know, the economists put it, Quote, rivalry between America and China will shape the post-COVID world. And as indicated by, you know, press headlines, like, quote, how the U.S.-China tech rivalry looks, looks like a digital Cold War. That's Bloomberg. Or how the U.S.-China technology rivalry heats up. That's the Financial Times. Or think tank publications, like the U.S.-China tech rivalry shapes the economic relationships of the future. That's by the Brookings Institution. Or the great tech rivalry, China versus the U.S. Or winning the tech battle with, uh, you know, China. That's from the, the Heritage Foundation. So, you know, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that so much coverage, you know, so much media representation is framing the U.S.-China rivalry as a true substantive rivalry of equals or of equivalence in structural and relational power terms. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if that's entirely accurate. Yeah, um, and your paper has these incredible headlines. Like The Economist says the rivalty, rivalry between America and China will shape the post-COVID war. Bloom, Bloomberg says how the U.S.-China tech rivalry looks in a digital Cold War. So there's all this comparison going on. 
But in order to explore this perceived rivalry, you examine the 2022 Forbes Global 2000 list of the world's largest public companies. Can you tell us about that research process? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I was I was really curious because, again, you know, the U.S. and China are being framed, imagined, represented, you know, represented as equivalent media and technology rivals. But, you know, I couldn't find a lot of evidence for a true symmetry of power and influence, you know, um, as related to these media claims. So, you know, if the U.S. and China were true media and digital technology rivals, each of these countries would likely be the home base for a similar number of the world's largest media and digital technology corporations. So, um, you know, in political economy of communications research, the number of global media and digital technology corporations headquartered in the country is often taken to be an indicator of that country's global media and communication power. So research on media imperialism has always sought to identify you know, what countries are home to the largest and most powerful media and communications technology corporations and you know, recognizes you know, the significance of corporations to a country's overarching structural and relational media and cultural power around the world. So you know, part of this research was to sort of figure out, okay, well, you know, how many media and digital technology corporations are headquartered in the United States and how many are headquartered in China? Um, and sort of, I sort of took this to be an indicator of the general distribution of media and digital technology uh, power, you know, between these two countries. Um, and it could sort of, you know, help us understand the extent of this rivalry, you know, is it an equivalent one? Is it sort of asymmetrical? Um, and so to find out how many major media and digital technology corporations were based in the United States and China, and to gauge whether or not the US and China were true media imperialist rivals at the present time, yeah, I examined the 2022 Forbes Global 2000 list of the world's largest public companies. So each year, Forbes ranks the largest corporations in the world using four metrics, you know, sales, profits, assets, and market value. And I take this list to be a useful empirical resource for identifying the world's most structurally powerful media and digital technology corporations. So in terms of the research, um, I reviewed the 2022 list and I identified all the corporations associated with the business of media and digital technology across five industry segments. So those five industry segments included IT and software services, hardware and technology equipment, media, including news, entertainment, PR and advertising, telecommunications and semiconductors. So of the 2000 corporations included in the Forbes Global 2000 list, I found 225 of those to be media and digital technology corporations. There were 71 IT and software services companies, 51 hardware and technology equipment companies, 25 media companies, 43 telecommunications companies, and 35 semiconductor companies. So having identified these 225 global media and digital technology companies, I then counted the number of these headquartered in the United States and in China and noted their overall rankings on the list. Now, that was a stark number. When I read this in the paper, it's, you said the U.S. was home to 90 of these 225 companies. How many in China, Tanner? Yeah, so yeah, the study of the Forbes list found that the U.S. was home to, yes, 90 of the 225 media and digital technology corporations on the list. That's 40% of the total list, whereas China was home to 29 that's 12.8% of the overall Forbes list of 2022. So I, I don't know about you, Tanner, but that doesn't sound like a rivalry to me. 
Um, it's, it suggests that China is indeed, uh, you know, power has a powerful sort of digital technology and sort of media sort of, you know, industry that is indeed growing. I mean, if we were going to do sort of more of a longitudinal study of Forbes list, we'd see sort of mm-hmm. more and more China, uh, you know, based companies emerging year after year. But, you know, well, China's global media and digital technology corporations are, are numerous, you know, as compared to other countries. They're not as plentiful as those in the United States by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, on the whole, U.S. media and digital technology companies achieved higher rankings than China's across the four metric categories, you know, in terms of sales, profits, assets, and market value. And this was across almost every industry segment. So, you know, the findings demonstrate that at the start of 2022, the United States, not China, was still the global system central headquarters for most of the world's largest media and digital technology corporations. In fact, the U.S. headquartered about three times as many of the world's largest media and digital technology corporations as China, suggesting that the United States, not China, is the global system's main center of structural media and digital technological power, though certainly not the only center of power. Of course, China is powerful. It is rising. It is growing. And and, and media and digital technology is central to that growth and expansion. But to suggest or to claim that this is a rivalry of equivalence um, is, I think, really missing the empirical record here. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us maybe one to two, maybe three, what are the main implications that come from this work? What can we as academics do from these findings or what findings are most important? Sure. I mean, I, I think that, again, emphasizing on this kind of growing, um, you know, international or global competition, conflict, potential rivalry between the U.S. and China uh, is important to consider and to continue to do research on. And I'm going to sort of outline a few future-oriented or present-to-future-oriented um, you know, areas of research that political economists of communication or anyone interested in international media and communications relations might take up. But, but be, you know, before I, I talk about those, I just want to flag some, some, some concerns, um, you know, that, that I think sort of more lean from sort of the theoretical methodological questions that um, I'm asking and trying to answer here to sort of the explicit train of foreign policy and politics and the way by which communications and media research can articulate to certain kinds of foreign policy positions that might be troubling. So, you know, one of my greatest concerns in studying what might be called China's new digital uh, media imperialism or even a China rivalry with the United States is that such a study, you know, risks inadvertently feeding into negative U.S. and Western imperial media frames, foreign policy Mm -hmm. agendas and and projects. So I'll just give you so sort of try to give some more context on this. So so again, like even within uh, historical materialist theory and even sort of, I guess, what you could call, you know, left IR studies, the claim that China is an imperial power is contentious. It's very, very contentious, and it's currently being debated by numerous international relations scholars. So, you know, I've refrained from conceptualizing China as a potential imperialist rivalry to the U.S. for fear of, you know, misreading China's expansionist ambitions. Um, exaggerating its power vis-a-vis the U.S. or even feeding into pretext for the U.S.'s intensifying sanctions or military expansion around it. You know, so in recognizing that, you know, communication theory produced by academics situated in the U.S. and Western or imperial core countries may unwittingly bolster the power relations it seeks to oppose, I am concerned that writing of China as a new imperialist rival to the United States might converge with the hawkish U.S. foreign policy establishment's dominant media agendas and frames of China as a national security threat. Now, I I sort of read the sort of discourse of every major U.S. national security agency um, 
on China published last mm-hmm. year, like all of the major reports and, and overwhelmingly, um, comprehensively, the U.S. security state has constructed China as the major threat to U.S. national and global security. So, you know, in writing about China as a rival, do we risk kind of like inadvertently or unintentionally playing into certain kinds of foreign policy framings? Um, you know, and then there's a longer history here. I mean, I'm, we, we need to be reflexive of American Orientalism and its production of a negative discourse about China that defines it as a country unlike and inferior to an ostensibly unique and superior United States, or alternately as a country that can be like, or must become like the United States in the future, which forecloses upon any different routes or alternative modernities that might be available or pursued. So, you know, and, and, and even like, you know, criticisms of China, even when directed perhaps, uh, you know, at its you know, party state bureaucrats or billionaire class, risks intersecting with the US's, you know, yellow peril, xenophobia, which was renewed by Donald Trump's White House and, mm-hmm. you know, has fomented anti-Asian racism, hatred and harm in the United States, Canada, and, and elsewhere. So, you know, those are those are just real, I think, like political, um, moral questions that we need to sort of take up or at least be reflexive about when we are hmm. studying these conflicted and contested and complex international relations between the United States and China. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't, you know, contemplate how China may indeed be the only, you know, imperialist rival to the United States, um, you know, in, in town. Um, you know, if we're if we're not going to sort of um, consider that, we also risk replicating the blind spot of the whole history of media and cultural imperialism research that didn't sufficiently attend to rivalry. You know, if we go yes. back and read Schiller's work, you don't actually have any sense that the Soviet Union is an imperial rival. Um, and and very much a, a lot of that research has, has sort of just you know focused on um, there's only one empire. Um, yes, yes, and and it also strikes me, Tanner, that the the idea of influence you know influence of the size of company versus the influence of the company might also be another area for potential things to look at but you i wonder if you have ideas for areas where people could you know further study new contributions that could be made in this area absolutely i mean again the, the present is contentious the future is unknown so i i, I hope <laughs> In the coming years, I think there's a lot of, like right now and in the future, there is so much space for new research on the US-China um, relationship in communications and media and digital technology and, and, and sort of a new understandings of this potential rivalry, um, I think will be absolutely vital to understanding the current global communication and media dynamics and divisions um, you know, in the world today. So um, I, 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 I think that we should be sort of attentive to the prospects for countries caught in the middle of this rivalry to chart and pursue their own independent communication media futures. Like if it is becoming a bipolar sort of, you know, global or world system, um, I think that many countries are going to be, um, you know, pressured, um, incentivized, per- motivated, perhaps even coerced to take a side in this rivalry. Um, and uh, that's something I think we should be attentive to. So like, what are the effects of these emerging sort of superpower clashes and conflicts within other countries that are being um, both compelled or, 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 or you know, persuaded um, to take a side? So to contribute to academic and public understanding of this trajectory, um, scholars might pursue one of the following areas of research on a new US-China media or cultural imperialist rivalry. So I'll just outline a few areas um, and uh, this, this might be interested to some listeners and some uh, IMCR researchers as well. So 
Um, the first would be comparative analysis of the U.S. and China state support for the media, technology, and cultural industries they headquarter. And, you know, focus on the each country's, you know, government's facilitation and legitimization of these interests um, and their expansion around the world. So, you know, what sort of particular legal policy and regulatory regime in the U.S. and China props up or supports the international or global expansion of the digital technology, media and cultural industry corporations headquartered within each country. So that's one area. Um, Another area might be, you know, state corporate propaganda, public diplomacy and, and soft power. So, you know, comparative research on the U.S. and China's media and communication influence campaigns, you know, that aim to win the consent of people in other countries to their official foreign policy agendas, their national identities and their, their cultural values and so on. So that's another area. Um, we might actually get into the study of the media and corporate elites of each country. Uh, you know, comparative analysis of the collaborative and possibly conflicted relations between the elites of the U.S. and China's digital technology and cultural industries. So, you know, what is the relationship between, you know, digital technology elites and media elites, uh, you know, the owners, the CEOs, the managers of U.S. and China's telecommunication, news, entertainment, and internet companies, and then sort of the elites that run the digital technology, media, and cultural industries of other countries um, that might be in some way influenced by these major two superpowers. Um, uh, we could do sort of more media ownership research, you know, just it's just kind of a, akin to the, the research that I provided in the IMCR uh, paper uh, presentation, um, you know, comparative analysis of the extent of the U.S. and China's media ownership of the media technology and cultural industries, you know, the sectors and firms headquartered in other countries, like what, to what extent, um, you know, is U.S. Uh, foreign direct investment in these sectors and other countries comparable to China's foreign direct investment, um, you know, in, in, in these sectors and other countries? Um, is, it, is it even? Is it asymmetrical? Is it similar? Is it different? Um, and, and, you know, what just concrete business strategies do U.S.-based and China-based digital technology, media and cultural industry corporations use to integrate firms or corporations in other countries into their international commodity chains, you know, to create these rival media markets and geopolitical spheres and cultural spheres of influence, um, you know, say things like, you know, uh, U.S. merger and acquisitions or China's strategic joint ventures or, you know, there's just all these different forms of like international or transnational intercapitalist collaboration and integration. So uh, how do the sort of U.S. and China lead these? Um, and, and where um, is this moving? Um, so, you know- well, Thank you so much. I have to stop you there because we're running out of time, but so many great ideas and also so much to think about here. I really appreciated reading this work and I know there's a more expanded chapter coming. Can you please tell us the name of the book? And I know you don't quite know when it's coming out, but the name of the book, what can we look for? Sure, sure. I recently um, uh, extended this this IMCR presentation to about an 18,000 word uh, chapter that is forthcoming in an edited volume by Lee Arts called Global Media Trajectories, Industry, Politics, and, and Culture. So I'm hoping that will be available um, to, to listeners, to readers in early 2023. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tanner. It was wonderful to have you. And thank you so much, Nicole, for this wonderful discussion. And I wish you and IMCR colleagues all the best in the future. Thank you so much. Just a note to the listener that more IMCR and Friends podcasts are available on Apple and Spotify. Thanks for listening.